Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, and Eric, we haven't done the whole what you've been watching segment for a while, but I think the last time we did it, I think I mentioned that I was binging The Office, the right. US version. And so I'm now in season nine, just a few episodes from the end. Um, and there's an episode where, and, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, this isn't spoiling anything, the, the documentary that has ostensibly been filmed during the whole series is close to broadcast, and a teaser's been posted to YouTube, and the Andy Bernard character is freaking out because an unknown commenter is leaving incredibly rude messages about it and him. And I was, so I was watching this with my friend Sarah Jean, and I sighed, and I said, oh, yeah. Never, ever, ever read the comments. As anybody who's written or done anything for the internet is fully aware, never read the comments. And she goes, oh, yeah? What kinds of comments have you had? And look, as I'm sure is the case with you, I've certainly had my share of cruel comments, most of them from Bill Detloff. Um, so, <laughs> you know, some of which have actually like really kind of shaken me up a little. But, there was, and, but I've managed to forget most of them. And, but there was one I remember that was so totally over the top that I couldn't help but remember it. And I found a screenshot that I'd taken of it. And it was from a couple of years back. It was a digital video I was hosting for HBO about some fight or other. And the comment... Um, which in the vein of so many of the bravest internet comments was from someone called Gmail user, <laughs> said simply, fire this guy. He isn't interesting to watch. And he looks like a rapist. <laughs> and I thought to myself, it was so over the top, it was almost funny. Yeah. And, I, and I posted it on Twitter thinking, you know, a couple of other folks would get a chuckle out of it. But actually adding insult to injury it's actually got the most like responses of any tweet I've ever posted. I posted about my new book deal a while back. It got a nice response. 40-something people liked it. A couple retweeted. A few comments. Very nice. Good day's work. But post a tweet of someone saying you look like a rapist, <laughs> and it gets, at latest count, uh, 19 retweets and about 360 likes. Wow. I I'm not sure how I feel about any of this, actually. <laughs> don't look at the responses to your tweets either, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> well, I must admit, I gave it a like. Uh, and I thought about a retweet. Um, it's just plain funny. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, okay, rape and rapists are nothing to joke about. But saying that someone who I do feel comfortable saying I do not believe to be a rapist <laughs> looks like a rapist, that's just good humor right there. Um, if I might speculate, though, we, we all know the SNL Celebrity Jeopardy bit. I'll take the rapist for 200 <laughs> back. And, it, and it's therapist. Um, right. So I, I'm going to assume... This was a typo or an autocorrect. He was saying you look like a therapist, and it came right. out looks like a rapist. That's what I meant to mm. say in that comment. I mean, I mean, that's what Gmail user right. meant to say. <laughs> not me. I I'm not Gmail user. That's what he or she meant to say is that you look like a therapist, and also that you're not interesting to watch. The sad thing was, like, there were people who like picked up. So he, the, whoever it was, misspelled interesting as interesting. Right. And there were plenty of people who said, "Oh, that's completely untrue. You're really interesting." Or interesting. <laughs> right. People latched onto that part. But yeah, uh, yeah no, it was definitely the, the whole rapist, uh, look like a rapist bit was what stood out more to me than the misspelling on uh, interesting. Yeah, well, Gmail user, the joke's on you, because do I work for HBO anymore? <laughs> well, no, I don't. Right. Right. I believe when they uh, canceled their boxing program, it was because oh, they employed someone who looks like a rapist was the main reason. 
Yeah, yeah. Gmail yeah. user, that actually account goes back to a Mr. P. Nelson of New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> moving on. Yeah. Uh, coming up on this week's episode, we look back on this weekend's action, including Jose Ramirez finally getting the chance to meet and beat Victor Postol to all but set up a clash with Josh Taylor, and Erislandi Lara maintaining his relevance in the 154-pound title picture with a unanimous decision win over Greg Vendetti. Uh, we look ahead to what the upcoming weekend has for us, and we will also run through some key news items. But first, let's welcome back to the podcast an old friend, uh, one of the best analysts, and indeed one of the best people in the sport. Uh, a man so inspired by his previous appearances here that he now hosts a podcast of his own, of which more later. It is, of course, Hall of Famer and our very good friend, the one and only Mr. Al Bernstein. Al, welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. I actually like to think that my appearances with you inspire most everything in my life, not just <laughs> the podcast. I, oh. you know, and I'm not sure how I survived all those years prior to doing your podcast. I know. Right. I know. Yeah. Everything was prologue, Al. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, man. When, uh, when last you joined us, we were all trying to make sense of this newly crazy world in which we find ourselves. Um, and, and we were wondering, as a very small and unimportant part of that, um, when professional sports in general and prize fighting in particular would make its return. Um, since then, boxing has made something of a return, uh, including yeah. on Showtime. Um, so today you've been part of the team calling two Showtime Championship boxing events from the hermetically sealed uh, center there in the Mohegan Sun. Um, so the first question to you is, basically how has that experience been? And can you walk us through what it is like broadcasting in the new normal, you know, from like when you arrive at the arena through to when you're done with the broadcast. Yeah, it's, it's intriguing because you, without the fans, the irony is in a way for a broadcaster, there's less intrusion in your routine in what you do and how you get ready. And uh, when you do your on cameras uh, for the broadcast and even sitting there at ringside, getting yourself organized or whatever, there is literally nothing to distract you. And that's kind of unique in a way. Uh, of course, the energy in the room helps you feel the event and, and, and all of that. Uh, but I'm one of those people that I believe the focus you have on what's happening in the ring and what you're doing uh, kind of supplants worrying about, you know, uh, what's happening around you. And I, I put myself in a little cocoon anyway mm. when I'm doing a broadcast, to be perfectly candid, uh, in, in terms of the crowd. But to, to yeah, more specifically answer your question, so you come there and you're, there's nobody around, so you're going to do your routine and get ready. And uh, it, is, it is kind of eerie because not having anyone there makes it feel like a more somber event. It may, what it really makes it feel like you're doing is a TV show. You know, you're like you're getting ready to do something that could be done, you know, in a studio, um, which is fascinating. So that's kind of the way you feel. And of course, then you have to juxtapose that to actually calling the fight. So you have to make a transition in your mind from I'm doing a TV show that feels like a talk show or, or something along those lines to a live sporting event. Mm -hmm. How much, if at all, are you able to 
interact with your colleagues you know obviously on fight night we sort of see how much interaction there is but uh like do you have fighter meetings in person what like what's going on in that regard yeah everything is most everything that's done is done by zoom uh we did the fighter meetings earlier in the week by zoom we have our, our talent meeting by zoom i do bump into my broadcast partners though because a lot of times we're going to get maybe get a covid check we, we're socially distanced and we have our masks on. And I have uh, chatted with, um, uh, with Mauro and, and uh, Abner and uh, Steve Farhood and, and occasionally Brian Kester uh, f- in those days where there are a few days before, obviously. I've chatted with them. So it's not like I've had no contact with them. But it's been brief and it, and it certainly is not the way it would normally be. Um, normally we would have all our meetings together. Plus we would share meals together and, um, and all the rest of it. I, I'm not sure that COVID-19 isn't just an elaborate plan of, uh, of Mauro Ronaldo to avoid having dinner with me. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm still sorting that out in my head. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I've seen that theory somewhere on the internet. You can find yeah. any theory somewhere on the internet. And that's, was, that's one I of saw them. it on the QAnon page. Somewhere. Yeah, right, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Mauro is Q, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'd, I'd believe that, too. Um, I mean, just is there a certain comfortability in knowing everyone in here has been tested? Or is the mentality – it sounds like the mentality is sort of still – to assume anyone can have the virus and everyone is still playing it very safe throughout. It's an interesting, your time there. That's an interesting question. I kind of think of it as the latter instead of the former. I, I think everybody's tested. We're socially distancing. We're all wearing masks. So yet, yeah, and we're doing the Zoom meetings. So and we're spe- we're social. We're 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 uh, distanced at the broadcast. Uh, so my feeling is. We're taking every precaution, and if you take every precaution, while it's not impossible still to catch COVID-19, you've really, really reduced the, the uh, chances of that happening. Mm. Of course, normally when you're broadcasting, you know, you're there next to each other, and yeah. even though you're watching the fight, you're, you're sort of taking, you know, this body language cues, that's you know, right. where to cut in and all that, but you're not getting that right now. Yes, you're so that's distant. a big difference. Yeah, is that difficult? Big difference. The first broadcast, and I, think, I, think, I don't think any of my colleagues would mind me saying this, the big, first part of the first broadcast, I think we struggled with that a little bit. Mm. Uh, it was, you know, and the way it's set up with us is I'm sitting at a table with, Mar- with Abner Mares, who's about four feet away from me, but then down the other side of the side of the ring with the timekeeper, ironically, in between us is Mauro and Steve Farhood's at that table. Uh, it was a little bit of a, of, of a struggle because you, you, you do rely on just looking over at the person or even putting your finger up to say, hey, you know, I want to say something or, or whatever. Uh, and it was a little difficult at first. Mm-hmm. We grew into it after, I'm going to say, the first broadcast fight of the first episode, first one we were back. And since then, I think we've been able to, uh, you know, to do better. We try still to look at each other mm-hmm. and make some eye contact, even though it's from a distance. Uh, but it is a it is a, a unique thing, and I, I know in some of the other broadcasts they had people they've had people doing remote where they're not even yeah. in the same building, and I you know that's tricky. Yeah, yeah, we've 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 heard people talking over each other more on those broadcasts, I think, than than on the show. It's hard, so you know. I I think it's a it's a little bit of a of a hard thing to do, and uh, and and there are certain things that can 
become habits forming and certain things you can do because of that, that you don't want to do. Um, right. And uh, so, you know, uh, it, it is a little bit of a challenge. So the next two fights are supposed to be September 19th, September 26th, one after the other. Is your plan at the moment to go from Las Vegas to Mohegan for the September 19th card and then stay for September 26th? Or would you go back? Or there's also been some talk that actually September 26th, the pay-per-view may not actually even be a Mohegan Sun. Maybe there's some, something you can show. Oh, I didn't on there. even know that. You're telling oh, me okay. something I didn't know. Uh, I should just call you for all news on my life. <laughs> no, and we'll call Keith Eideck, who tells us. So. Right. Do you know anything about my wife's uh, <laughs> doctor appointment? I went Hang on, let me call Keith. <laughs> Hold on a second. Did you check on that? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, um, my plan would be to come back still. I'm going to go okay. there, and even though it's it's a, a three-day turnaround, uh, I'm probably going to come back to Las Vegas and take care of some things and then go back okay. to um, – to Mohegan Sun, but there, there, I did ruminate for a little while about the idea of staying, but then it just didn't seem uh, mm. uh, feasible. Right. All right. So those are the, those are the two next cards coming up. Looking yeah. back at the two you've done so far, um, I think on both the most memorable moments came on the undercards. We got a, a knockout of the year candidate from Joe yeah. George against Marcos Escudero, and a robbery of the year candidate in uh, Raleigh Romero versus Jackson Marinez. Which of those is the stronger candidate in its category? Like, do you see either or both of them standing up at year's end as Oh, deserving? that's interesting. Right. Uh, knockout of the year or bad decision of the year. Uh, yeah, it's intriguing. Um, they're both going to be candidates uh, because, you know, uh, although one of the judges didn't have it that way, um, Escudero was, was, was leading on all cards before mm. he got knocked out. So that mm. made it especially... Uh, dramatic. Uh, and with Romero, in terms of uh, the questionable decision, what made that especially egregious, I think, was the 118-110 scorecard. Yeah. Yes. That was, you know, not rooted in any possible reality. <laughs> and so I think that adds, you know, to that. Uh, is it possible that Romero won that fight? It is possible, but uh, not likely. And uh, uh, and I think both of them will go a long way toward winning in that category. You know, that first card, uh, just a comment on it. When we had it set up it, with Stephen Fulton facing... Um, Angelo Leo. Yeah, right. Uh, and then uh, we had uh, Tremaine and I released Salim and that first fight, the Escudero fight. That looked like the perfect card to me. It really did. I, I, I was so in love with that card because Stephen Fulton got, you know, had the sit out because of COVID-19, it just jumbled things around. Yeah. Uh, because I think Tremaine, Tremaine uh, and, and um, Ray Salim would have been a better fight than Tremaine was able to give uh, um, Leo. Right. And Leo Fulton would have been spectacular. And we yeah. saw in the first fight something dramatic happened. So I, did, I felt bad about that. It felt like a missed opportunity in life for a, a real nice card um, and we still had good moments, but it, it, that card, I had really great hopes for that. Yeah, and I think we're all hoping that we'll still get a, a Fulton-Leo fight at, at, at some yeah, point soon. Yeah, I think soon. it will happen. Yeah, um, but one, one follow-up uh, on that, just on the topic of 
questionable to uh, to horrible scorecards. Um, I don't think that Romero Mourinho's was surpassed for robbery of the year this past weekend by the yeah. Jose Ramirez Victor Postal fight. And Kieran and I will talk about it more later in the show. But I just wanted to get your take real quick on the scoring since we interacted on Twitter about it. That that one sixteen one twelve from Steve Weisfeld. An awful scorecard in your view, or are you okay with it after sleeping on it for a night? No, I, I didn't like it. I, Steve's a wonderful guy, and he's generally a competent judge, but uh, I, I, I don't see that card, you know, eight, eight, eight rounds to four. Uh, I just can't imagine just giving Postal four rounds in that fight. It is conceivable, I guess, but I, it just doesn't seem plausible to me. Uh, you know, to me, that was a razor close fight. That was a fight that really, uh, if you looking at it from each man's vantage point, Postal, when he woke up this morning, probably said to himself, if I had just done a little more offensively, if I had just thrown a few more of those right hands, mm-hmm. uh, if I'd have mixed in my good left hook occasionally, though you don't want to do that too often because then you get countered by Ramirez's left hook. But if I just done a little bit more and Ramirez woke up thinking, I know my performance was a little flat and but I, but there were things I didn't do. I didn't cut off the ring. I didn't, you know, I never got him against the ropes. Uh, they could both look at things that could have made their case stronger for winning the fight. Um, of course, Ramirez ended up getting the win, so his regrets this morning are much less than than right. Postal. Um, but I, so it, to me, it was a razor thin fight, and uh, the the draw and and I guess the one fifteen one thirteen for Ramirez are scorecards that I think are you know, within the, the bounds of uh, good taste. <laughs> um, and again, nothing against Steve, but just, I just think the 116-112 scorecard was not. Mm. Looking ahead again, we, we touched on the fact that, you know, we've got cards on both the 19th and the 26th, and the main event in both uh, some exciting 154-pound uh, fights. We've got Erickson Lubin taking on Terrell Gaucher and Jamel Charlo in a very dangerous bout with Jason Rosario. Um, you know, you look at some of the names we've got right now in 154, it feels like you've got a top 10 in which anybody can beat anybody. And we've kind of had that already, right? We've had Herb beat Harrison, Harrison beat Charlo, Charlo beat Harrison, Williams beat Herb, Rosario beat Williams. If you had off the top of your head a tournament of, say, the eight best in the division, who would you think right now would be the favorite to come out on top? Well, you know, you, you mentioned all the people you'd probably have in that tournament. Right now, I think right now people generally perceive Jermel Charlo as possibly the best of the 154 by, which isn't to say, and we already saw him lose, that he can't lose to some of those other people. He could. Uh, but I think the general perception is he may be uh, a, not, a, a hair above everyone. Uh, but... Clearly, J Rock, who still, uh, you know, is a, a, a competent, very competent, uh, 154 pounder, and Rosario. We're going to find out about Jamel and, uh, and um, Jason Rosario uh, when they meet each other. So we're going to know about them. Jared Hurd's a very much a an unknown quantity because we haven't seen him in so long, mm-hmm. uh, and and we don't know. Number one, he was talking about moving up to middleweight. Now, you know, is he really okay at 154? Can he make the weight? Can he be effective? Um, Tony Harrison remains a solid fighter. Uh, so all those people are – are and, and Erickson Lubin, of course, we're going to see him against Cachet. He wants to – he wants – what he wants on the 19th is an exclamation uh, mark. You know, he wants to say, here, I really did a number on – 
Gichet that wasn't done, you know, in his uh, previous fight. Uh, and, uh, and, and I want to I really get him. So I think all of those men are very, very good. At any given time, any of them can beat each other. But I think the perception is that Jamel Charlo right now might be a hair above them. And speaking of guys who are looking for an exclamation mark on the other half of that September 26th pay-per-view, the other Charlo twin, Jamal, uh, he's in extremely tough against Sergei Derevyanchenko, who, as we know, came up just short against Daniel Jacobs by split decision, then could have gotten the decision against Golovkin. What does Charlo have to do against Derevyanchenko in your mind to get that exclamation mark, to, to stake his claim to being one of the very top dogs at middleweight or maybe the top dog if if Canelo has left the division? Well, you, you kind of hit on it when you pointed out Derevinchenko's last two fights in which he was not only competitive, but could easily have gotten those decisions, especially the Triple G match. So for Charlo, who's now getting Derevinchenko a little bit, you know, he's 34, he's starting to get older. Uh, he wants to either knock him out or win decisively. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And it's going to be a very interesting fight, in my opinion, because of the styles involved. You know, Jamal Charlo has that, that nice length and reach and power punches from a distance. He can even land his uppercut from far out, as, uh, you know, Julian Williams found out. Uh, and then you have Dervinchenko, who is a a fighter that likes to make it rough and tumble, throw a lot of punches, create a lot of volume, create a little chaos on the inside. And uh, and what will happen to Jamal Charlo if that is the case? He hasn't really fought that many people like Dervinchenko. You know, uh, he really hasn't. You know, if you look back at his record, the Austin Trouts, the, uh, the other folks that he's fought, even J-Rock, they're not that kind of fighter. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how that's, these styles mesh. And it is an important fight for Jamal Charlo. It is arguably the, the biggest fight of his career um, and, uh, and comes at a time when, you know, he, you know, we have all these, obviously all these political uh, issues and network issues and making fights. He wants to make a statement to say, look, if, if we enter a new era of, uh, which we're all hoping we're entering of maybe some of those barriers coming down. Let me be one of the guys that crosses over to fight, uh, 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 you know, somebody big like a Canelo or whoever. Right. So I, I got to say at the risk of appearing like a complete Showtime show, I, I actually really love this back-to-back pay-per-view card concept. Very on good. The 26th. I, I really like it. I mean, can you think of anything else like that over the years? I mean, I know Don King used to have these ridiculous cards that started basically at breakfast time and carried on to like 1 a.m. But yeah. like even, even the pay-per-views were just four fights, I think, generally, um, portion of those cards. Right. Can you think of anything quite like this? One of the Don King cards was actually a pajama party, in fact. <laughs> we, by the end, we were calling uh, for pizza and making prank phone calls. <laughs> right. All uh, of this, I believe. You, you yeah. don't want to be the first to fall asleep. <laughs> no, no. Oh, no. God, no. Uh, you know, they, they, ironically, King did have a card that felt like this was called, and somebody pointed out, uh, you guys probably know about it, the revenge match right. or something. They had mm-hmm. all these great champions yeah. on there. And, and they were all having rematches, which is pretty extraordinary. This, uh, and my, my, that one pay-per-view may have had the most champions on it that yep. anybody's ever had. But 
this one is very different. And the fights look really good. You know, there, there's a couple elements to this. We've got the Charlos both in very, very competitive, what could be very interesting fights. We have a round robin of the 122-pound division, which I think is the second or third most uh, talented divisions in the sport of boxing. Uh, there are so many good fighters. We're going to see Daniel Roman against uh, Piano. We're going to see Brandon Figueroa. We're going to see Luis Neri in a very good fight. So all of those look intriguing, you know, and, and if you get a little luck on your side, just a little bit of luck on that night, you should end up with three or four terrific fights. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, you know, boxing fans will be happy about that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the challenges of calling such a long card. Six fights takes a, a lot of mental energy to stay focused. And, um, you know, maybe it's harder on Moro, who expends more energy, I would think, than you do in the way in which he calls a fight. But still, is there a concern that you might start getting a, a little punchy at the end of six fights and possibly 60 or 70 rounds of boxing? You know, I don't really worry about that. I think that the... the uh... The most important thing is that we have a 30-minute break in between for me to go to the bathroom. <laughs> right, yeah. right. At my age, Martin Short had a great line in the, his, his show with Steve Martin. He said, I've reached the age of 60, and the only time I don't want to go to the bathroom is when I'm going to the bathroom. Yes. <laughs> so yep. so yep. that's probably more graphic than any of your listeners needed me to be about my situation. But the fact is that that, you know, that's an issue, but as far as doing the, uh, the fights is concerned, um, I really don't because I've done long cards before, you know, where you're there for, you know, it feels like the Jerry Lewis telethon uh, and, and, and you're going to have a little break in between. And I don't, I think, listen, you should be able to do it. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just of the mind that, that that it is not uh you know somebody could do it's like somebody doing a football game that goes into three overtimes you know right. i mean you have to look at it the same way in terms of mm -hmm. the amount of time it is and whatever so but it is a, a valid point you bring up that you have to make sure that you and we and, and here's the one thing i want to say i won't mention any names but oftentimes networks and broadcast entities have treated pay-per-views in a way in which the fights leading up to the main event are viewed with less importance, yep. announced with less importance, and just not treated with the respect they deserve. I've never had that attitude, and Showtime has never had that attitude. I can say that. Well, I'm, or I'm, we're talking about being shills. I guess I'm being <laughs> shill right now, but, but it's a fact. And, right. and, and wherever I were, and I took, I had that attitude when I did, I've done, you know, well over a hundred pay-per-view cards in my career, maybe 200. And I've worked for a lot of different people. I've worked for promoters. I've worked for people, for other networks. I always took that attitude that all these fights were, were important. Heck, they're on this big event. So they must mean something, right? Uh, and, and so, it speaks to your point and that speaks to why there is, if you approach it that way, you run the risk of maybe not being at the top of your game for every single fight. But I, right. I really don't see that as a, as a problem. It's, it's funny. I, I hadn't thought about this element of it until you were speaking just now, but with those pay-per-view cards, part of the reason sometimes the early bouts feel less important is that the 
the fans have not filed in yet. And by the main event, right. you know, every, everyone's crowded celebrities in the front row, but the first bout or two, it's kind of empty. I guess we won't have that contrast here. <laughs> there will be the right. same no. number of fans at the right. beginning of the card as at the end. Right. We won't. No, I agree hundred percent. That's, and you, that's a very good point. Uh, and it's, I, I believe, I know I'm sounding, uh, you know, I'm kind of bashing away at this. It's how you treat the fights, you know? Sure. But I've watched pay-per-views where I'm watching a fight. Now, this is really good, but the people doing it are acting like we're just killing time here. Yeah, you know? right. Um, we're not killing time. We're doing and, – and when you put on a really good undercard, uh, which I believe this is, you know, I mean, there are a lot of really potential good fights. And, and we hope they're all going to be good and competitive, but at the very least – you mentioned we mentioned those bantamweight fights. You're seeing at least half of on the the of in th- three fighters what could be the top of the 122 pound division or near the top of the 122 pound division. So no matter what, it's you know it, it's something important to watch. Yeah. So the, the other Showtime pay per view scheduled for this fall is Javante Davis against Leo Santa Cruz. Um, not to overlook Santa Cruz, but. I'm more interested for now in your take on Javante, Al. Uh, the fight is for both 100 and 135-pound yeah. titles, and a lot of people believe that that could be an out in case Tank can't make 130 pounds. In addition to the weight issues, there was the video of him a while back dragging his girlfriend out of a basketball game. We've spoken to him on the podcast. Obviously, you've spoken to him at length. One-on-one, he comes across as a really nice kid, and he can fight, of course, but given his weight issues, given what we saw in that video, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about Javante Davis reaching his full potential? Yeah, that's the good way to phrase that question. It's about him reaching his full potential and, and things can get in the way, whether they're in the ring or out of the ring. And clearly he's had his share out of the ring, not just in terms of making weight, but obviously the other incident you referenced. Um, mm-hmm. This fight has several very intriguing aspects to it. The one you mentioned is one of the biggest. Can he make 130 pounds? And you are right. Maybe saying it's for the 135-pound title uh, has given them some kind of out if he doesn't make it. But at the very least, he has to try to make it. Mm -hmm. And even that is the part that's tricky for him because however he does this, he's trained to try and make 130 pounds at a point where he, we've even seen him struggle with 135. So that is a big, big, big issue. I'm sh- I know the Santa Cruz side are banking on two things. A, that he's going to have a hard time making weight, and B, they can get this fight into rounds 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, where they think uh, Leo Santa Cruz's volume punching will make a difference. As far as Gervonta Davis is concerned, extraordinarily talented, you, you, you hit it right on the head. He is a very engaging young man when you talk to him. And from a larger standpoint of stardom, which he's really been on, on the cusp of achieving, if not achieving it already, he's filled up arenas. We're going to find out how he does in the pay-per-view arena. Uh, but, you know, it's can he project that? And does he need to project that? You know, for all those years, Floyd Mayweather – thought he needed to project a certain thing and then he had a different persona and guess what it sold better than the first persona <laughs> right uh so Gervonta Davis is is an interesting kind of enigmatic figure 
One of the things that will probably, uh, uh, it will depend on whether he reaches his full potential, will be whether he can fight true rivals. And Santa Cruz is a very good fight, but Santa Cruz is coming up in weight, and, he, and he's not one of the holy grail of lightweights, you know, Lomachenko, Lopez, Ryan Garcia, um, Devin Haney, that whole group that boxing fans are thirsting to see fight each other. And, of course, they're going to see Lopez and Lomachenko. They want to see all these other guys in fights too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to switch gears towards the end here uh, a little bit. And, you know, we've talked a bit about how sports is sort of struggling to come back. Entertainment generally is kind of struggling to come back. Yes. And there's probably no town that more feels that and reflects the struggles of the economy and of entertainment than if your hometown of Las yes. Vegas. Um, as far as I'm aware, the, the Raiders stadium is almost complete, if not actually it finished. Done, yeah. It is done. You've got the Vegas Golden Knights are still doing great, but they're doing that up in Canada. Um, MGM, I just read the other day, MGM Resorts have laid off 18,000 people, which is a huge chunk of the workforce. And I know how much that affects a town like Las Vegas, a company town like that. Um, what is the status with casinos and venues in Vegas right now? And based on what you're seeing there, do you have a sense of any kind of timeline about how things might be going? Because as I understand it, Vegas sort of opened up, the casinos opened up, but soon realized that was a bad idea and had to backtrack a little bit. What's your sense on the ground of what's going on there? Well, from the entertainment standpoint, it's a living, breathing thing to me. As you guys know, I do a lot of entertaining here and perform. And so in my orbit are many, many of the performers in Las Vegas, most of whom have been sidelined. There are some little venues that you, if you can tie a venue to a restaurant, you can be performing. Uh, so, but if it's an event where you're ticketed, no, you can't do it. So I know the pain firsthand of all the people that I am very close with who have been sidelined. Uh, Las Vegas in general, from an entertainment standpoint, has been sidelined for the most part. There are some things that you can do still to go see some live music, but it's very, it's very minimal. Uh, and so I think we're an interesting kind of um, case study of this whole COVID-19 uh, in Las Vegas. Because, as you said, yes, the casinos opened, but... They didn't, there are elements that are not open and, uh, and it doesn't feel quite the same. And you always get the feeling we're one, yeah. you know, one bad week or two or three bad weeks away from saying, uh-oh, we better yeah. close this down. And I think in a way that's what the country's feeling. Yeah. Uh, but in Vegas, it's a very, um, it's tangible. It's in yeah. the air. Uh, and for those involved in entertainment or sports, uh, it's a very real issue. Mm. So I infer that that your other part of your life is completely on hold. You haven't been able to do any kind of performances at all. No, nothing for over uh, for over a year. This is probably the longest uh, period for wow. in the last decade or so that you know that I haven't really done anything. I, there is an opportunity for me to do in one of the casinos to perform uh, because of the nature of what how they're opened with their one room, but. Honestly, I've made a decision not to. My wife, uh, and you guys may know, is a cancer survivor. And, um, right. and 
her um, vulnerability to the COVID-19 would be disastrous. So I'm doing literally everything I can uh, to avoid that. And so I've kind of made the conscious decision not to avail myself of what would be an opportunity to do it. But, you know, I miss it because it's uh, it, it was it became a really staple in my life. As I think I mentioned to you before, I'm very fond of the Tuscany because I used to live more or less across the street from there. And right, it's kind of like right. where you have your residency. So, yeah, um, I right. mean, how, like, how is the little Tuscany? Is it hanging in there or? It is, you know, the Tuscany is, yeah. And ironically, that's where music is still, you can still in, the, in their lounge there because it's tied to a restaurant. Okay. They can bring food in there. They still have it, but they limit it to 50 people. My friend Kenny Davidson is still performing his shows as are some of the people. They, they brought them back. And they have plexiglass up, they, you know, demand the social distancing and they only allow 50 people in there. So they're trying to be responsible about it. And, uh, uh, and that's one of the few places where you can hear live music um, in, in Las Vegas. All right. So, so the ability to perform has been taken away from you uh, for now, but uh, you've, uh, you've, you've filled that hole to some degree with a, with a new venture, uh, which was mentioned at the top of the show, that, that you've become a podcaster in your own right. Uh, Al Bernstein Unplugged is now at 20 episodes, and I've listened to every one, and I really enjoy it. How have you found hosting a podcast to be so far? And I believe you have some, uh, some major news that you mentioned on the yeah. last episode, but you'd like to share that here as well. Yeah, uh, this is the first time I'm actually talking about it on a uh, on a, pl- a public platform. But uh, the podcast has been so much fun to do. You guys know that. You, uh, one of the joys is you get to talk to different people. Um, mm-hmm. This week, notwithstanding, for you, uh, but <laughs> mostly, mostly it's pretty enjoyable. Uh, and <laughs> you get, you know, you. Uh, that part I love, you get to, you visit with people you don't always get to see, right? So you, you literally can, uh, it, it, it's a form of entertaining the public and, oh, by the way, catching up, which is mm-hmm. very, very fun. Uh, and, you, and crossing the, the boundaries. I'm sure you guys have had uh, guests on from across the pond. I know you have. And mm-hmm. so, you know, even that, you, you know, you're, I mean, I used to do the, the uh, one of my future guests coming up is going to be Richie Woodall, the, Nice. Broadcasting over in the who I worked with across the pond when I did fights on Channel Five, and I, I'm not able to do them now, and so uh, that's a great way to catch up. But so I've enjoyed the podcast experience; it's been a lot of fun, and uh, kind of surprisingly to me, in a, re- a very short period of time, because of the efforts of a couple of people that were working with the production company and this syndicator named Kelly Camps, who I didn't know before then. Uh, we have turned it into a television show. And in fact, starting this week uh, in uh, on about nine or 10 different platforms, including the Fight Network in Canada, and uh, 11 Sports and AMG TV, U2 America, a bunch of uh, platforms, it's going to become a TV show. And we've taped the first two episodes. It'll be a half hour uh, TV show on uh, the first two episodes. We got Antonio Tarver's our first guest, and then Jimmy Lennon Jr. And then on the third show, I'm actually doing a preview of the September 26th um, pay per view card. But uh, so I'm very excited about it. Folks should, uh, if they can, uh, check out uh, the various platforms that they can find for it. And uh, it's going to be fun. 
That's that's great. Congratulations on that. And uh, it's funny, I, I was going to mention some of my favorite guests so far, and, and you named actually the two that were first came first to mind. I loved your interview with Jimmy Lennon, and I loved your interview with Antonio Tarver. So that that makes a lot of sense to to bring them to the TV show. Yeah, we thought I thought of them for the to, out of the box, and Andre Ward's going to be um, following shortly after that. And I just did an interview with Mauro Ronaldo. He's on this weekend. You guys, of course, have interviewed Mauro before and you know Mauro very well. He's a, Mauro is, to me, is really one of the most fascinating guys around because he's so eclectic and, uh, and, and has such a unique viewpoint on everything. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think people who haven't met Mauro realize that the Mauro who is ringside is Mauro. Like, that's what you get. <laughs> Like, like the dial is set at 10 when he's turned down. Right. He's a fascinating guy. And uh, when people get a chance to see him just talking, I think they find him uh, really intriguing. And, and, and he is his range of interests are, yeah. you know, I mean, all of us sitting here, we all appreciate people being eclectic. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, uh, that he brings to the table. Absolutely. Hey, Al, buddy, listen, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Everyone, do check out Al Bernstein Unplugged. Uh, go find Al on Twitter, at Al Bernstein. Check him out, Showtime Championship Boxing. We will next see you September 19th on the broadcast. Al, thank you again very, very much for joining us. Very good to be with you guys. Thanks, thanks Al. Uh, Al is the best. Uh, he he and Steve Farhood are basically one and one A in the people in boxing that nobody dislikes rankings. Yep. And we get to work with both of them at Showtime. I, I feel like even YouTube commenters are probably nice to those two guys. <laughs> Uh, anyway, always a pleasure to have Al on the pod. Uh, let's look back at this past week's Inside the Ring action, and we'll begin with a couple of fights uh, that took place in what I like to call not America. Uh, in Australia, in a junior middleweight grudge match, Tim Zhu, son of Hall of Famer Custa Zhu, dominated Jeff Horn, uh, technically, officially a conqueror of Manny Pacquiao, less officially just a good, tough Aussie veteran. Zoo dropped him twice and stopped him after eight rounds in front of fans. Uh, and in England, not in front of fans, Daniel Dubois dropped replacement opponent Ricardo Snyder's four times in slightly more than a round of action before Snyder's made it perfectly clear he wanted no more prompting a stoppage 20 seconds into the second round. My comment last week was that it's going to be a tough call between KO1 and KO2, and indeed, pretty close on that one. Uh, Dubois remains unbeaten at 15-0, 14 KOs, and is now expected to move on to the all-British clash with Joe Joyce, 11-0, 10 KOs. Zhu, too, is unbeaten, his record now 16-0 with 12 KOs, and after he dispatched Horn, talk began of his moving up to take on world-class opponents. Kieran what did we learn about Zoo and Dubois, and what did you think about their performances? Yeah, look, good and clear and utterly dominant win for Zoo. Uh, he's was clearly vastly better boxer in every way than Horn. You know, more skilled, faster, stronger. Had him in trouble early. Had him basically beaten not long afterward. And, and for the last four or five rounds, it was clearly just a question of when, uh, not if he'd get the stoppage. I will join the big pile on on Horn's corner, um, which I thought was terrible throughout and especially at the end i mean you don't ask a fighter who is getting beaten up whether he 
wants to keep going out for more. You don't put that pressure on him. And they they could have stopped it a round or two earlier. Um, so yeah, I will join that big global pylon on them there. Um, the one slight criticism I had of Zoo in the first half of that fight is I thought he needed to do a bit of a better job of taking that half step back hmm. after landing because it was clear that all Horn wanted to do from about the fourth round onwards, if not even a bit earlier, was just leap forward and hold on as desperately as he could. And, you know, and Sue seemed happy enough to let him do that. But I would have liked to have seen him make it a bit harder for Horn to do that. Um, and, and I think actually over the last few rounds, he did do that better. I thought he did do a better job of moving it and, and Horn wasn't able to hold on to him quite so easily. Um, I thought a tiny bit of the reaction to the win was a bit over the top. It was a very good win, but absent, you know, Horn's slightly fortunate result against Pacquiao and Sue's last name, I'm not sure it necessarily merited quite the reaction that it got, probably because it was a very big fight in Australia. It was midweek here in the United States. And we had nothing, and Wednesday morning even, so we had nothing right. else to, to focus on. Um, let's not forget that Horn was battered by Terence Crawford. He was knocked out by Michael Zarafa, uh, two and two in his previous four fights. What Sue's performance showed, I think, what it was, it was a very good very calm, very composed performance from a young boxer. It was a real coming out party in the sense that a classic sense that he proved he belongs at a level above where he's been performing so far. He has some serious potential. It is way too early to talk about, you know, challenging for world titles or anything like that. As we just discussed with Al, that's a division that includes a lot of very, very good fighters. Um, but Zou can definitely start looking to make his way up that ladder. I mean, he's clearly got talent and skills and he's clearly got a good head on him too he was very mm -hmm. calm in that ring and that yep. was very impressive i thought um as for dubois look snyder's was a relatively late replacement but he did not belong in the ring at all with him that was actually embarrassing um it might have been felt less embarrassing if there was a crowd roaring dubois on every time he knocked him down but yeah, no, I think, you know, it's funny. We talked about the risk of having Dubois and Joyce take fights so close to their scheduled matchup. And, and you know, there's that balancing out there, isn't there? You want right. to not get your guys hurt or knocked off. But you also want to get them a bit of a workout. So, you know, they've got that muscle memory back before they get in the ring with each other. But I'm not sure that this even ticked that last box for Dubois. I'm not sure his muscles got a chance <laughs> to actually remember what, uh, what is involved in being in there with an opponent. I, I don't know that he even broke a sweat. I'm not entirely sure what the point of it all was but he didn't get cut and he didn't get hurt this fight will soon be forgotten roll on joe joyce yeah um you know i i, I don't have much to say about dubois i've been high on him since the yep. first time i saw him i remain so this fight told us absolutely nothing um i'll just note that there are some whispers of the joyce fight being delayed because they'll want it to take place in front of fans um i don't know how how true those whispers mm. are um if so hey do it in townsville australia apparently it's somewhat safe there uh or or do it on the white house lawn also a very safe place right, to gather right. without social distancing um as for tim zoo uh I, I fall pretty much right in line with where you are at this point uh i think it's natural to be skeptical of a son of a legend um there have been some good ones you know say what you will about julio cesar chavez jr he turned out to be pretty good for a little while shane mosley jr is solid etc etc but they're all living off their dad's names and it takes a lot to be convinced they're truly elite in the ring so I'm not totally convinced yet with Tim Zhu. He still has a lot more to prove. But at 25, with 16 pro fights under his belt, he's come further already than I would have assumed back when he first turned pro. And 
what struck me in this fight is the same thing that struck you, his his steely-faced calm, that nothing unnerved him. That's a great quality to have, and look, nobody expects him to be as good as his dad, but if he can turn out to be 90% as good, he'll be the biggest superstar in Australian boxing for the next decade. So th- this is a good thing for the sport, having him develop uh, as he has to this point. Agreed. Uh, agreed. Meanwhile, back here in these here United States on Saturday night, Eris Landy Lara returned to the ring and comprehensively outpointed Greg Vendetti at the Microsoft Theater in Los Angeles, winning a 12 round unanimous decision by scores of 116, 112 and 117, 111 twice to remain in the 154 pound title consideration. Uh, that fight was televised on Fox. Meanwhile, back in the MGM Grand Bubble. The long-awaited and much-delayed 140-pound clash between Jose Ramirez and Victor Postol finally happened on ESPN+. And the fight proved to be simultaneously fairly close and interesting, while not necessarily terribly exciting. It was a cerebral affair born of a clash of styles rather than out-and-out action, which probably shouldn't be a surprise given these respective styles and the nature of the two boxes involved. But nonetheless, there was always intrigue all the way through. Um, Ramirez ultimately prevailed by a majority decision. Dave Moretti saw it as a 114-114 draw. Tim Cheatham scored at 115-113. And Steve Weisfeld, as we mentioned earlier while talking to Al, saw it as 116-112. In contrast to Al, and I'm assuming to you, I did actually score it the same way as Weisfeld, which means I'm correct. But, <laughs> um, but it was also one of those fights where it's weird, where you look at your scorecard and you feels like it's too wide because each of the rounds is very close and many of them could go either way. And if you just go in a certain way, you end up with a wide score on your scorecards, even though the fight wasn't wide, if you know what I mean. Um, I I think not too many people, I don't think many people had too much issue with the result, but, you know, to follow on from your conversation with Al, I think it was greater contentment with Moretti's and Cheatham's card than there was with Weisfeld's. Based on what you were saying to Al, I'll ask you how you score. I'm assuming you were closer to Moretti or Cheatham than you were to Steve Weisfeld. And, and what did you think about generally either Ramirez Postal or, or Lara Vendetti or both? So I'm a little worried that the era of being able to assume Steve Weisfeld's card is correct might be winding <laughs> down. Uh, this is two slightly iffy ones now since bubble boxing began. Remember, he also had Giovanni Santian over Antonio DeMarco, 96-94, mm. which I didn't That's agree true. with. Uh, Weisfeld has yet to have what I'd call an outrageous card, but this was, to me, the iffiest of the three in this fight. I agreed with uh, Moretti's 114-114, but as you said, this was a fight with a lot of close rounds, where it often came down to, what do you like? Do you prefer jabbing and movement and volume, or the guy who's getting out work slightly, but landing the cleaner power shots? I don't look at this fight and say that, you know, there were more than four rounds that either fighter won clearly, so I have no real problem with your 116-112 and Steve Weisfeld's 116-112. I don't feel strongly about it, as Al does. Um, as I posted on Twitter, I was worried we'd see a 118-110 that right. had to have been filled right. out in advance for the house fighter. These scores don't feel filled out in advance at all to me. It was interesting getting a look at at the full round-by-round scorecards, uh, the judges had Postol up 4-1, 4-1, and 3-2 through 5. So none of them had that questionable Andre Ward scorecard. Uh, But then they all had Ramirez rallying. They gave Postol just 1, 1, and 2 of the final seven rounds. 
to me, like round 12 was very typical of the fight. You know, Postal seemed to control the first 90 seconds. Then Ramirez was clearly in charge for the next 80 seconds. Then Postal got the better of just the last 10 seconds. And I thought he his rally at the end made it a really hard round to score. And all three judges gave it to Ramirez. And that's kind of the way it goes. And that's why I didn't bet this fight. I saw Postal at four and a half to one. And I thought long and hard about it and ultimately decided those aren't favorable odds. They're fair odds because he's not going to get a decision unless he dominates. And I didn't really expect him to dominate. But, um, you know, I I can't complain about the decision at all. I thought it could have gone either way. I've felt from the start uh, with Ramirez that we're looking at a good fighter, not a great fighter. I think he got a tiny bit overrated off a win over Maurice Hooker, who himself yeah. is a good fighter and not a great fighter. And this is two debatable decisions now in his last three fights. I see him a very clear underdog against Josh Taylor, if indeed that fight gets done. Uh, as for Lara Vendetti, uh, good for Vendetti for giving it his best shot. Uh, bad for Lara for kind of going through the motions and doing the minimum he needed to do to win. And look, we, we've celebrated Lara becoming a more entertaining fighter once he hit his mid-30s. Um, but there's a time and place to go to war. I don't fault him for not wanting to empty his gas tank against Greg Vendetti. I will say this is one of the first fights of the COVID era where I felt the lack of a crowd. It was just mm. very dull, and the quiet mm. made it seem more dull although i guess if there had been a crowd we might have heard booze uh, so so that's not much better but yeah just a, a very forgettable fight all around larry gets the win and moves forward and i don't think you can say much more for him than that that he got the win yeah it's funny i made the same note um that yeah lara has proven lately that he can be exciting when he needs to be and when he doesn't need to be He's still Arislandi Lara. And like <laughs> right. you said, can't, can't blame him for that. And the amazing thing is, he's, there he is, still is, right? I mean, he's still um, able to do what he does, and he's still very much in the picture there. He's going to continue to be an extremely tough out, I think, for uh, um, for anybody. And um, yeah, you know, the thing with Ramirez Postal, it's like we said when we were looking at it last week, that the post- problem with Postal is he doesn't have that second gear. It's like he find- if you allow him to find his comfort zone he will stay in that comfort zone and he doesn't change that and that was working for him up to a point but i think sometimes you look you know if you're a judge maybe you want to look a little bit and see who's adapting and who's trying to you know change somewhat with the circumstances of the fight and it felt like ramirez was trying to do that it was interesting i thought after six and seven i thought that ramirez had a measure of him um and that he would pull away Mm. but then it was almost like postal just never went away and ramirez kept having to reset again and try again um the victor postal is always going to be a really really tough guy to to fight um i felt like the biggest winner of the night was probably terence crawford who is the one person who didn't really have any trouble with victor postal and who is looking desperately for someone to fight and that, you know, uh, Ramirez uh, and Taylor are sort of on his side of the street. And right. you know that he's got to hope that they fight, that he'll the winner will move up to 147 and face him. And based on what he's seen, less so with Taylor than Ramirez. But either way, he's probably got to feel that he has the measure of either of those guys, I would think. Yeah, I think so. All right. So last weekend, finally saw Ramirez and Postol meet after multiple delays. Next weekend, 
fingers crossed. Jamel Herring, who by my last count went two for four on COVID-19 tests in the MGM Grand Bubble, which was enough to twice postpone his junior lightweight meeting with Jonathan Okendo, is hoping it's third time lucky in Las Vegas next Saturday. Eric, assuming it finally happens, your final thoughts on that matchup? So my first thought uh, is that I feel old looking through Okendo's box rec. Uh, I'm realizing that I remember him from when he was young, losing to Juanma Lopez in 2008 and Wilfredo Vasquez Jr. in 2012. Uh, This is a tune-up for Herring, um, just as Carl Frampton's last fight was a tune-up, the aim being for Herring and Frampton to meet this fall. Herring seems like a great guy. Uh, I've never spoken to him, but uh, I read a very good article over the weekend by Bobby Cassidy for Newsday. Herring comes across well in it. He's been through a lot this year. I'm interested in his personal story. Not sure I'm interested in this fight, though. (laughs) Uh, Elsewhere, looking at news around the boxing world, we mentioned Josh Taylor. He's the man at 140 pounds. Taylor has signed to defend his title against Apinun Konsong in London on September 26th. That will be streamed in the States on ESPN+, an afternoon fight here that shouldn't really conflict with the big Showtime double pay-per-view that night. Um, Seven pounds further north, we have news about Terrence Crawford, who, as you mentioned, he is desperately looking for a truly meaningful title defense. He's reportedly offered Kell Brook $1.5 million to be his next opponent. Uh, Talking of next opponents, I'm reluctant to even mention the latest Canelo rumor, but it comes from our friend Keith Idek, so it is completely reliable, at least. The Avni Yildirim flirtation apparently didn't last long, as Canelo, Golden Boy, and DAZN are all now apparently back on the same train which is expected to arrive either at Saunders Station or Smith Station in November, (laughs) that being Billy Joe Saunders or Callum Smith. Uh, And sticking with Keith Idek, he also reports that, according to Freddie Roach, Manny Pacquiao won't fight in 2020 and will likely glove up just once or twice more before retiring. Kieran, plenty to unpack there. Uh, Your thoughts on any or all of the above? Uh, so Taylor should be a pretty big favorite against Kansong, but um, the Thai boxer, he's dangerous. Um, he's won his last six bouts by knockout, including a highlight reel knockout last year of Akihiro Honda. Uh, and that was a fight that showed Kansong's strengths and his weaknesses. He can be a bit slow. He can be outboxed by a smaller guy with good footwork and faster hands and a nice jab. But gosh, he's got one hell of a punch, uh, as he showed with the fifth round uppercut that absolutely poleaxed uh, Honda. Um, as for Crawford Brook, uh, bigger, I've been a big admirer of Kel Brook um, for a while. But at this point, uh, he's a name and not necessarily much else at this point. But as we said, Crawford's desperate for someone to fight and he can get some money. He can get some UK TV money. Uh, for that, um, he is, to my mind, unquestionably the best welterweight. And as I've been saying for a long time, you know, one of the very best boxers in the world. But he needs to be able to prove it. He is starved of quality opposition. He's absolutely on the wrong side of the street with his weight division. Um, and I'm sure he knows it. So, yeah, look, he uh, his ideal solution is a defense against someone like Brooke and then either the Taylor Ramirez winner or uh, the uh, Spence Garcia winner, one of those. He's got to try and make one of those happen because right. uh, the clock is ticking on Terence Crawford, who I think is a fantastic talent. Um, I'm not even going to bother commenting on Canelo. We'll have a different story next week. <laughs> right. um, Fair enough. And, and, and as for Pacquiao, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure he won't fight this year, but 
as for retiring in one or two fights, I don't know how much of that is accurate and how much of that is just Freddie wishing aloud because right. Freddie hasn't quite been on the inside with Manny to the same extent for a while now. And he's been quite vocal about his readiness to see Manny retire. Well, at least since the fight with the aforementioned Jeff Horn and maybe even before that, he's been, he's, Freddie's clearly seen that Manny, although still obviously as we've seen, a very, very good fighter and one of the best is not the Manny that he used to be and is clearly still cares for him and wants him very much to focus on his political career sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I think Freddie might just be kind of trying to put it out into the universe uh, yeah. and, and see if it sticks, this idea of Manny being almost done. Um, and I'm with you on, on Crawford Brook. I don't think much of the matchup, but what else is there for Crawford? Yeah. Uh, I doubt it will be a real test for him but it's better than a total mismatch against a guy who isn't even close to world class, which we've been seeing some guys come back in that sort of fight. Brook brings name value. Look, there, there are some really strong fights being made for the last four months of the year. We're getting Loma and Teofimo. We're getting Gervonta and Santa Cruz. We're getting these two Charlo fights. We're getting Spence Garcia. We're probably getting Dubois versus Joyce. I'm not going to complain about any of these other ones. Um, but, you know, at the same time, am I excited for Crawford Brook? No. Am I excited for Canelo Saunders, if that's what we get? Not really. But, you know, they're they're okay, all things considered. I'll continue yeah. to hope Canelo chooses Callum Smith, as that's it's just a better stylistic matchup. I don't know if he's a bigger threat than Saunders, but that's the matchup I'd prefer to see. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. All right, finally... This won't be news to anybody at this stage, and it's maybe a tad tangential to this podcast, but uh, you and I both wanted to say something. Uh, Fight fan, ringside regular, and actor Chadwick Boseman died last week of colon cancer at the age of just 43. Um, Apart from being a great actor, and by all accounts and appearances, uh, the nicest and most decent of people, I'm personally blown away by the fact that he had this cancer and knew he had it and was undergoing treatment for it for fully four years during which time he filmed movies, he promoted movies, he made public appearances, and he never let the mask slip. I obviously didn't know the guy, um, but knowing from afar or getting a sense from afar of who he was as a person and loving his movies, especially Black Panther and especially the cultural impact of Black Panther, this news for me, of all the things that we've been hit with, this for me was almost the point after everything else that I thought, you know what, 2020, you win. All right, <laughs> fine, just, I'm done. I'm tapping yeah. out. Leave us alone. Uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on Chadwick Boseman at all that you wanted to share? Yeah, I mean, this was just shocking news. I I saw it on Twitter as I was getting in bed Friday night, and my first response, just seeing uh, it in a tweet, was thinking there was another Chadwick Boseman. Like, maybe it was his dad. His dad was also Chadwick Boseman Sr. or something like that. Uh, It just didn't register at first. It was so out of the blue remarkable that he kept his health problems this private Uh, that just doesn't happen in the modern age and um yeah it's just tragic this is one of those news stories that you can't find a way to both sides there's no there's no upside of this it's just a tragedy um i'm not the most knowledgeable chadwick boseman fan i never saw 42 or draft day or get on up or the five bloods i really only know him from black panther and the last two avengers movies plus he popped up in a season two episode of justified uh back when he was pretty much an unknown actor but obviously he was excellent in black panther 
and should have had a lot of life and career ahead of him and by all accounts was a really good person. And he was, as you said, a boxing fan. Uh, His final tweet was a celebration of Kamala Harris being the vice presidential nominee and a call to action to vote. So, yes, everyone, please vote. Uh, 2020 is the worst year of our lives, and it keeps getting worse somehow. Uh, But we can still end it on what Chadwick Boseman would have considered a good note. Amen to that. Uh, Excellent uh, finish there. All right, look, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with news and views and interviews. Uh, Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. (laughs) 